On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we welcome Kennedy Ryan. Kennedy is a Rita Award winning winner and top 25 Amazon bestseller who writes for women of all walks of life, empowering them and placing them firmly at the center of each story in charge of their own destinies, to which we say thank you. <laughs> Kennedy and her writings have appeared in Chicken Soup for the Soul, USA Today, Entertainment Weekly, Glamour, Cosmopolitan Time, O Magazine, and many others. Her new novel, Before I Let Go, is out now, welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Kennedy. Hi, thank you guys for having me. I'm so excited. I'm a fan. I listen to you guys Yay. all the time, so I'm really happy. Oh my to be God. Here. Uh, of course, yes. You just made our day. Just made yes, our day. Yes, you did. Well, you're making mine by having me, so thanks. Good, good. So tell us a little bit about Before I Let Go. And also, I understand, is this the first book you ever wrote, but not the first book you're publishing? So. Right. Tell us about that. Exactly, exactly. I have to be clear. This is a book, it it is completely different from the first draft. Like, it will be a disservice to all of the work that it took and all the editors and everybody who was involved for me to say it is not completely different. But the first draft I wrote probably 15 years ago. I mean, the characters' names are different. Like, so many of the scenarios are different. It's much more layered and much more mature and, I, I hope, much more layered and mature and complex than it was when I was 15 years younger. <laughs> but yeah, the, it even has a different title. Like we've, it, I literally rebuilt it from the ground up. But the first draft of this book, yes, I wrote 15 years ago and it was under my virtual bed and I never, ever planned to publish it. It's not my debut novel. And it was just kind of gathering dust. And my agent came to me and was like, you know, what are we going to do next? And I honestly, I and this sounds so writerly and so pretentious and obnoxious, but I kind of only write when I have something to say, if that makes sense. Like, I'm not somebody who's sure. like, okay, it's time to write the next novel. What's Big Step Brothers? Or, you know, whatever it is. Like, that's kind of <laughs> not how I get to story. And so I'm usually indignant or passionate or something is compelling me. And at that moment, I just finished my last novel and nothing was really like compelling me. And so I was talking to my husband and I said, my agent wants me to write something new and I just don't even know, you know, what I feel like talking about right now. And he goes, what about that divorced couple? And I I was like, that "That book from like 15 years ago, it's crap. He's like, no, babe, it has so much potential. And I kind of just pulled it back out. It was in third person. I mean, it was just complete. And this one's in first. It was a completely yep. different thing. And I started looking at it. And I was like, maybe he's on to something. So I've told this story a few times. And so many of the early reviews, people say, thank you, Mr. Ryan. <laughs> you know, <Yes>. seriously, <laughs> he's the real hero here. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. 
So oh that's, that's kind of how it happened. And I'm, I'm just really, really glad that he reminded me about this story. Mm. Yay yes, for Mr. Ryan. You know, Laura yes. Dave's husband did something similar, or at least I read this, about the last thing he told me for her, which, as you know, went on wow. to be her biggest selling book of all yes. time. And yes. same kind of thing. He was said, what about that story you wrote? And so... Yay for the husbands who are yeah, paying attention enough, yes. right? Yes. 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 Absolutely. So you mentioned you listen to our podcast. You know we focus on the complicated women, so we love to start with Yasmin. I'm pronouncing it yes. right, correct? Yes. Okay. Yasmin, yes. So a lot of the things that we read, the female character often starts at some sort of crossroads or in a crisis. Um, but when we first meet Yasmin, she's actually coming out of a period of grief and loss and she's really finding herself and her joy again you know she's fought her way from sort of darkness to a lighter place so I wanted to uh, find out more about Jasmine and your development of her and also why you chose to introduce us to her at this point in her journey it was actually very strategic First of all, some of my books have a reputation for like making people cry. I don't know. <laughs> and I I really wanted to lean into joy and friendship. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are parts of... Mm-hmm. I, I saw the trajectory of the book and understood that there were going to be some really low points. And that there were going to be... We were going to revisit some of the darker times in Yasmin's journey. And I really wanted to lean into... A lot of times in fiction, we don't get to see black women being happy and being joyful. And I really wanted that to be the reader's first impression of Yasmin was a woman who had fought, you know, and who was at a place of joy and who was, you know, with her friends and was really loving life. I wanted us to meet her at that point. It was a very strategic decision. Um, And it also is kind of like giving the reader a little shot of adrenaline before we start this sometimes harrowing journey. You know, I wanted the reader to have that joy and that hope as a foundation so that as we started to walk through some of those darker times for them as a couple and them as a family that they would have in mind, she's okay right now. You know, this is tough, but she has... She's she's gone through harder things. She's beaten harder yeah. things, you know, and she has now. And this is one thing that Yasmin, I think, articulates is at different points. And I don't want to be spoilery because some people may just be yeah. finding it, I hope. But she articulates at various times Things can get hard, but I have tools now, you know, like there are tools that I found in therapy, you know, and I don't think it's too spoilery to say that she's, you know, she's gone through therapy, she's on medication, she's coming out of depression, and she has to remind herself... I'm I am that woman, but I'm not that woman. You know, I have yeah. I have tools in my kit. I have friends. I have a therapist. I have people who love me, people who will surround me. You know, and she recognizes that when she was going through depression, she isolated herself from some of her friends. And she recognizes there are things I would do differently, even if things are hard. You know, I have things to get me through it that I didn't have before. And I kind of wanted the reader to have that sense as well, even from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, right. You give us a happily ever after, in a sense, before you start. And then so we know this is going to be okay. We know (laughs) we just got to get through it kind of thing, which is, I mean, the best life lesson, right? Right. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, we you're talking a lot about the tools and and you said in your acknowledgments that when you were writing this novel, like 
Yasmin, you were diagnosed with depression and that you wore the skin of this book, which on one hand made it a challenge being so um, close to you, but also obviously gave it such depth and such authenticity and realness for her struggles and what she goes through. And again, what you're talking about, the toolbox, is that what you feel like you brought most to to her journey? Yes. (laughs) I think that at the time... When I first started rewriting this book, I didn't recognize that I was in the throes of depression. You know, it was during the pandemic and I had writer's block and I couldn't write for a really long time. And when I say a really long time, five months, you know, that's a long time for Mm -hmm. most writers to say I sit down and nothing happens. Um, Mm. And it was very scary, you know, for me, as far as that's how I make a living, but also that's such an extension of who I am. And so for me not to be able to tap into that was kind of terrifying. And so Mm -hmm. I started seeing a writing coach and she's like, I think this is a little deeper, you know, than just writer's block. And when I got into therapy and like Yasmin, when you talk about my journey, kind of informing some of this, like Yasmin, it took me like three people before I found the right therapist. And that can be discouraging. And a lot of people stop after the first one doesn't work because they're like, this therapy is just a load of crap, you know? And I knew if it is like, it's kind of like, it feels like my last hope right now. So I'm just going to try another one and try another one. And if you asked me if I would choose to never have dealt with depression and written the book without having that experience to inform it, I would say yes, because <laughs> I don't want to go through depression. But mm-hmm. the intersection of what was happening in my life and what, and Yasmin's journey, um, I definitely think it informed it. I mean, my therapist would read the book and probably say, you owe me some royalties. I mean, honestly, <laughs> because there were times when I would come out of a therapy session and I would have to remind myself, this is for me, not Yasmin, you know, because I would come out of therapy and furiously be jotting down things that my therapist had said to me because I was like, Yasmin yes. needs this too, you know? Yes. So there was definitely such an intersection between my journey having to overcome a resistance to getting on medication, having to overcome any shame or stigma around it. And I think all of those are things, and I think that part of it informed, we're talking about a complicated woman, but I think it informed um, Josiah's journey, her her ex-husband, husband, husband, um, his journey as far as the stigma around it. All of those were things that um, happened to me. And it's, Honestly, it's really high praise for you to say that maybe it added depth or authenticity because that was my hope. Honestly, there were days where I was just like, I hope that at least what comes out of this is that I have empathy for this character and that I can articulate some things that maybe other women are experiencing um, that maybe they have not heard articulated before. And um, so many women who have read early, they message me and they're just like, I felt like, you know, you were articulating something that happened to me. I saw myself in these pages. And that's really just the, I mean, that's an honor and that's the highest praise for me, honestly. Oh my gosh. No. And that that. you're, you're totally addressing my next question in the most beautiful way though, because I mean, I, I really felt that when I was reading it too, so relatable. And I said, to Corinne that I felt like I know this is a romance and we're going to talk about the romance but it felt like a love letter to therapy is and therapy I love therapy and I'm a huge (laughs) 
uh, proponent of it. So, yeah. but you don't read it discussed in this way. Not that you don't ever read anything where someone goes to therapy, of course, but it's right. such an integral part of the story. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it doesn't just, it's not just one character going to therapy, right? You you address so many of the different aspects of it. Like you said, finding one, which is very hard, you know, finding the right one or how each person really needs to come to therapy when they're ready, like Josiah. Like you can't make someone go if they're not ready. So that angle is addressed Mm -hmm. Um, and just the resistance that a lot of people have. And he represents that. And then even just the family counseling or child psychologist. I mean, you, you really cover all the angles. This isn't just sort of sprinkled in. And I just felt like it was such a realistic and full representation of therapy as a way to address mental health issues, which honestly, in my view, everybody has. (laughs) I mean, we all have issues of some kind. Yeah. And so, I mean, I know it was obviously part of your personal journey too, but was a lot of it for you trying to destigmatize it or just, you know, make it seem like this is just a realistic look at it? Very strategically, intentionally trying to destigmatize. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I know that's something that hap- you know generally you're going to see across the board, but especially in the black community, there's a real yeah. resistance. And then when you drill down to black men, there's even more mm-hmm. of a resistance and more of a stigma. And I really wanted to show a black man who starts there, you know, who is informed by those cultural, you know, stigmas in his journey and has doesn't even recognize, I think at first that a lot that he has lost is connected to that resistance and then getting to a place where he feels comfortable pursuing therapy, even if at first it's just so that, you know, he can model it for his son and I'm not going to get anything out of this. And then we actually starts to find someone that he can be vulnerable with and who can really give him perspective and unpack not just what happened with his family, but all the things that have happened in his past, how transformative that is for him and how healthy it is for him. I wanted that to be Um, an image. You know, I wanted that to be a model. I wanted um, women who were reading it to see it. If there were any men, you know, who read it, I wanted them to see it. Um, You know, when you talk about, there's even a, well, I won't get into the details of his therapy sessions because I I don't want to be super spoilery, but you know, a lot of times people touch on therapy and, and like you said, kind of sprinkle it in. And there are like whole therapy sessions in this book. Mm -hmm. And I was very, very careful with that. I actually, um, my background is journalism. And so interview is a really big part of my research process. And usually I have eight to 10, at least eight to 10 subjects that I'm interviewing anytime I write a book. And for this one, I had more than that. (laughs) I probably had eight therapists alone that I was interviewing. So I interviewed these therapists and then I asked three to four of them to be beta readers. And so that was just because I'm like, if we're going to go this deep into therapy where you're actually seeing therapy sessions on paper, it's got to be right. You know, I can't be careless with it and I can't be putting out misinformation or I really didn't want therapists to read and say, oh my gosh, she's so far off. She got this wrong. Yeah, she got this so wrong and it's so harmful. You know, she's actually doing harm. And so Mm, therapists were really one of my partners in this book and making sure that it was sound and what we were talking about was sound. 
Mm-hmm. I love that. Oh, that, yeah. You're not just mentioning therapy. Oh, in therapy, I learned this. You're really going deep right. with it. <laughs> or assuming that my experience was the only, you know, therapy. Yeah. I didn't want to lean mm-hmm. just on what I'd had, but wanted to make sure I was looking at a broader spectrum of experiences. Yeah, that makes sense. But it is a love story. Yes, and specifically, yes. it's a second chance romance that I thought right. was very surprising and interesting. And there is something just universally appealing about the idea of two people that come together and then are separated for some reason and then come back. And I tend to think that is almost a new relationship. It's a a new finding each other. And, uh, you know, but we also talk about the one that got away and how maybe age or time or circumstances kind of get in, in between things in between two people. But I wanted to know what, where you were coming at it. Cause this is part of the original one that you wrote 15 years ago, this idea of a divorced couple and oh, yeah. what happens to them. Yeah. And in yeah. The original, so what, what draws you to this trope? I, you know, it's something that I find myself writing a lot and I didn't realize it until a few of my readers were like, like 80% of Kennedy Ryan's books are second chance. And I didn't even recognize that, but they're so right. Um, mm-hmm. But in this one, I think what was really appealing to me about this particular scenario is people so often say, well, you know, you're going to get the happily ever after with romance, you know, almost like it's predictable. And I kind of wanted to look at, well, yeah, but what happens after the happily ever after? What if something goes wrong with the happily ever after? And I wanted to start with them divorced for like two years And in the original, they are divorced. They do have two kids. They do have a restaurant called Grits. Like all of that, you know, kind of stayed. But I wanted to start with a love story that felt kind of hopeless. You know, like for me, that was a challenge as a writer is to start at a place where the reader, some readers might be like, well, how is this going to (laughs) work? You know, like they're already divorced and they're both kind of moving on, you know, and they found a new rhythm and they're co-parenting and it feels like they're making some kind of peace with the situation. So how are we going to kind of find, find their way back to each other? And for me, a lot of times I know like the things that people, the devices sometimes that separate couples for second chance romance. And I I know sometimes the things that bring them back together. For me, a lot of times when I'm doing second chance, it's not just like, oh, I want them to be apart and then come back together uh, because that's second chance. A lot of times for me, it's like, I want them to mature. You know, I want them to become who they need to be on their own. Um, And then when they come together, it's almost like they're ready for each other. And I think that there's something that, yeah, I don't remember everything that I wrote, but I do remember Yasmin (laughs) saying something to the effect of we were just both so completely incompatible in our grief. And they Mm. grieved in completely different ways. And um, there was just the way that they were dealing with the hard things that happened to them really put a wedge in their relationship to the point where being together was almost stopping them from healing individually and from doing what they needed to do individually. And I know that's not something people want to hear because they're like, that's not romantic. You figure it out, you know? And I think Mm -hmm. for this couple, they had to figure it out apart. You know, there was so much work they needed to do on themselves individually um, before they came back together. And I'm it's like they then they were ready, you know, the same way yeah. that Josiah had to, you know, be in the right place for when he was ready for therapy. I think it's almost like they had to be in the place where they were ready to be 
who they needed to be for themselves, especially Yasmin, um, and then mm-hmm. to be who they needed to be for each other. And a lot of times in my books, especially with second romance, and especially with long separations, like I have some separate, I have one book that has a separation of 20 years, <laughs> you know, because they're childhood best friends. And I really like to see, especially women, form. Mm-hmm. You know, I like yes, to see them yes. figure out what are my limits? What are my boundaries? What do I like? What do I want? What do I dream? Like, I like to see them form themselves outside of a man, you know, yes. and then, you know, come into this relationship. Not that you're, you know, fully realized, but you are, you know, there's an integrity to who you are, that integrity yes. in the sense of wholeness, not, yes. you know, a moral integrity, but a wholeness. There's a yeah. wholeness to yeah. you that when you're with someone else, it's it's a partnership and you're not expecting them to mold you into anything or to fix anything for you. Um, yes. I know I'm talking a lot about it, but I get really no, passionate about no, this. this is yeah. our favorite thing. You have this no is idea. Our, and we find yeah. these nuggets in everything we read and watch. <laughs> we just This is the kind of stuff we attach to. And it's so, I love that you separated out those things because it is about her being ready for herself and then also to be in this relationship. And those are two different things. And that's sometimes something that gets missed in the second chance love is that, oh, it's like, oh, we just walked into each other again. No, you're you're finding each other because now you're ready to deal with each other. Right, right, and right. that you said a lot of times it's just what's keeping them apart and then what's going to bring them back together. Yeah. But what right. you did so well here, I think, is the, the I think these are successful, these types of stories, when you convince the reader, why is it going to work this time around? I mean, right. what's different? Right. And what we like to see is the that the, the individuals have grown and they've yes. healed whatever wounds. they As I like to say, they worked on their shit. I mean, whatever yeah. their individual stuff is so that they can come whole. And I felt like that's what I love so much about your novel because they each do it. Because sometimes one of the 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 woman does it honestly typically finds (laughs) herself or whatever but then I'm like well what about that guy he's still gonna do the same (laughs) things you know what has he done you know and so both of them do that here and I felt like one of the tools and we talked about tools before but Mm -hmm. one that really came through was self-forgiveness and self-compassion and I felt like those were the keys to the growth and the healing. Is yeah. that what you felt? I mean, that's, that's what I took away from it. Absolutely. I think that's a really essential element of it. And again, my, I hope my therapist never reads this book because she's going to be like, I want my check. Um, because <laughs> I remember us being in a session and I don't remember everything that we were talking about, but she was just like, I want you to be gentle with yourself. And I really never mm-hmm. thought about that concept of being gentle with myself and Mm -hmm. it makes its way into the book you know where she you know the therapist advises her to be gentle with herself to forgive herself to give herself grace and these sound like easy concepts but as especially as women you know and you add in mom guilt you know wherever that comes from and you add in our sense of superwomanism you know where Mm -hmm. we're taking on so many things and then we're trying to manage everything and when things start to fall apart it feels like somehow is this my fault like there are just so many things in culture and in life that somehow even subliminally 
communicate to us that it's our fault or that we should have guilt or we just that maybe that comes from the inside sometimes. But um, I, I really wanted to show Yasmin. I wanted to show the struggle of Yasmin being gentle with herself and forgiving herself and giving herself grace because I think that's almost a universal struggle for women. Yes. I'm sure there are women yeah. who have their shit together and that isn't. Yeah. But most of the women I meet, we're not as gentle with ourselves. We don't give ourselves as much grace. We're not as quick to forgive ourselves as we should be. Yeah, mm. and you know... We think to ourselves, don't be like this. You know, don't right. think everything's your fault. Don't take it all on. But when we already have the key to letting it go is what you're talking about. The self-forgiveness, right. the the grace, the, you know, disposition to just, all right, it was what it was. Like, let's let's do something else. Let's move on. Let's try. Let's just keep going instead of you know, taking all, because we've already been conditioned, most of us, right. to believe that it is our fault and it's our responsibility and it's our duty to do these things. And then when we fail, there's no outlet. There's no grace. There's no, right. you know, and some of uh, that forgiveness. Is, so that's the tool. And some of that sometimes I think is patriarchal culture keeping us in our place. You yeah. know, like help, you yeah. know, yeah. sometimes yeah. like diminishing us and making us, feel like we are responsible for everything. Um, I can't remember which comedian it was. It's a it's a, a woman who's a comedian, Allie. I can't remember her last name. But she's a Allie woman Wong, and she was probably. Yes. And she was like, I don't need um I she's like, I'm looking at, you know, my husband and all that I do and how, you know, he couldn't do what he does if I wasn't doing what I did. I don't need a husband. I need a wife. <laughs> you know? Yes. Because we as wives, that's <laughs> yes. what so often we're doing is we're keeping yes. the house and we're keeping the kids and we're holding down a job and we're doing all of these things that based on cultural norms free our partners up to completely in an uninhibited way pursue their dreams pursue all these opportunities and we want we have to figure out how to pursue our dreams and opportunities with all this stuff while still holding yes while While still holding all of that stuff yeah and it's hard to not get caught up in you know forgetting to be gentle with ourselves and all of those things when we're we're doing all of that yes Mm. absolutely so I know we, we have limited time, and I'm not going to get to talk about some of the things that I love, but just so you know, I have to say I loved Soledad and, and Hendrix. I like I want to yes. be friends with them. I thought the yes. friendships were so fun. Um, the parenting, oh, my gosh. I have a teenager. I mean, Corinne has kids, too. We know. I mean, that dynamic, you nailed that. That struggle. Yeah. Um, but struggle. I thought your descriptions of grief were so spot on in the book. Um, there was one that I'd like to read because I thought it was so beautiful. Um, you wrote, grief is a grind. It is the work of breathing and waking and rising and moving through a world that feels emptier. A gaping hole has been torn into your existence and everyone around you just walks right past it like it's not even there. But all you can do is stand and stare. And I know you did so much research on that. That feels so personally just so spot on, as I said. Um, And you mentioned you're a journalist. And I know you spoke to a lot of therapists and and people, mothers who've experienced grief. And so what were some of the, the... findings or research or things that really struck you in in about grief that that sort of made it sway into here or maybe didn't but 
It's so interesting that you say that, and I'm going to screw up parts of it. So I probably should even try because I haven't revisited this part of my research in so long. Mm-hmm. But I think I have the general gist of it enough to uh, to to mention it. I was looking at the this is going to sound geeky the neurology of grief. You know, mm-hmm. and how there are yeah. studies now that when you experience trauma, like a life altering grief incident, that your body processes it like a brain injury. And mm. that there is a brain, there's a fog that comes where there are people who like literally forget people's names. They find themselves, you know, unable to do certain things that they've always been able to do. And the discussion of grief being almost like a traumatic, when they neurologists look at it, having some of the it's same the brain, effects yeah. as traumatic brain injury. For me, that really informed a lot as I started writing, because I don't think that we as a society give it the weight, that type of weight. Yes. The implications of grief that we don't account for is what it really got me starting to think. And my husband had lost his dad a few years ago. And I noticed that he, you know, took a little time off and then he was right back at it. You know, he was right back at work. That's what's expected. Yeah, That's what's expected. And, you know, of course, they're not going to say take the next six months, you know, to, to grieve. But it's like our bodies and our schedules have to pick up where we left off. And there's this these huge parts of us who are just like that passage says, just standing there staring at this and yeah. cannot move. We're immobilized. We're paralyzed. And I think that was one of the things that really struck me in my research when I was looking looking at the neurology of grief was that neurologists process something like this as brain injury and that we wow. don't give it the same weight and we don't give ourselves the time if we realize that it has that kind of effect on our minds on our brains that we would give culturally we would afford yeah. ourselves more time to grieve but we don't and that was one yes. of the things that really struck me and even though I don't actually ever I actually had it in a draft and it was like okay this is getting really nerdy and so I just I even though I couldn't articulate that study that I found in my research the idea of not giving ourselves space for something that seismic it influenced everything I think that Yasmin especially experienced with grief yeah and you really in the part that Kate read it really captures the the difference between what it feels like inside and what it feels like to the outside and even if you've experienced grief it's still hard to hold that space for someone else because it is it's so personal Personal. it's so so yeah and and yet you stand there like you have a big gaping hole and everyone else is just like you know having a sandwich bleeding out over here and nobody sees me like what right it's just yeah. And really, I, one other thing right. that I really want, and I, I know we have to go, but there's another passage where, oh gosh, I, this is the last thing I'll say, I promise. But there's another passage where Yasmin talks about grieving and having to negotiate that private grief and that public presence mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. we're the facade that so often we have to put up and how often yeah. we are affecting that to make other people feel more comfortable because it feels yes. like we should have oh moved on by now and they're so uncomfortable with the fact that we're still grieving and she has mm-hmm. this phrase that she talks about a violent vulnerability you know, and how when you were in public, when that if that facade and I have been in that situation where I'm holding it together and then all of a sudden something happens and 
You're surrounded by people, you're out in public, and you find there is literally nothing that's going to hold me together right now. And the reason I refer to it as a violent vulnerability is because it feels like an assault. You know, it feels like someone has reached and just torn everything down and left you just standing naked, you know, in in CVS, (laughs) you know, and you're just like, (laughs) and there's a helplessness. There's nothing I can do to make this better right now. And um, I've been there and I know how that feels. And it was something that I really wanted to articulate because I think it highlights how what we feel like we have to project and we put so much energy in projecting that more energy often into projecting it than than healing actually healing yes 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 absolutely Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah so Kate but go ahead I'm I wanted to go back to that one but but we do have to ask and I think we have a couple minutes yes just so we always have to ask about astrology, which is our oh. little side interest here, I know, okay. because we uh, like to believe that we, uh, there's some, some bigger things happening in the universe that, okay. that are outside our control, or we use it to figure out things about ourselves or about others. Um, okay. So we always ask our authors, what's their sign and do they relate to it? But we, whenever we can, we snoop. And I know you're okay. a Libra. I am a Libra. Yes. <laughs> Yes. yes. So do you relate to that? I think I think so. I don't I don't follow astrology very closely, but I always I there are certain signs I know I'm like, ooh, Gemini. You know, like there are certain signs that yeah. people talk about more than others. You know, they're like, ooh, that cancer energy. You know, it's like those co- colloquially I know, but people are always like, Oh my gosh, I knew you were a Libra because you're so yeah. nice. And I, I I'm like, well, if people always tell me that I'm Libra and it has to do with sometimes being nice and being sweet and seeking harmony. I do think that's a harmony. Part of me. But you guys mm-hmm. might yeah. know more than I do. Um, but those are the aspects that I know about that I relate to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned them. But also, I just read recently that they um, seek joy, which just reminded yeah, me of definitely. the way you started mm-hmm. this off. Yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Well, you guys can tell they me more. Tell joy. me more than yeah. I know. Yes, and balanced. I don't know about... Yes, yeah. balance, look for balance and harmony. I mean, they are... The symbol is the scales of justice. Yes. Um, also, I'm like aesthetically pleasing. They like things to be pretty and to... Yes. You know, they like beautiful things and... Um, Energetic, but, magnetic... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those okay. are words that are just jumping off of the screen for you. Oh, yes. oh, yay. Exactly. I like those. Yes. <laughs> yes. You're like, can I agree with those? You yeah, right. Yes. Tell yes, me tell me more. I love it. I love it. It is my rising sign. So it's like one I do I do know a little bit about. So yeah, and I'm, I'm kind yeah. of leaning into my Libra. I like it. I like the balance. Okay. That's awesome. I actually so, was thinking about integrating some of that for Hendrix's story. So I'm sure I'll be digging into some of those oh, nice. issues. Love right, it. right. Mm-hmm. Love it. Awesome. So just before we leave, could you let us know what you're loving right now? Any TV shows or movies or books that you want to talk oh, about that gosh. you're um, really into right now? I am so typical. I just finished House of the Dragon, and like so much of the world, I I really got obsessed with it. I loved it so, so much. 
I loved Ozark this year. Um, oh, I just yeah. started. I love <laughs> some of the best television ever. Um, I just started The Empress. Um, I love okay. historical and period pieces. I just started The Empress. I am waiting for. Um, Oh, gosh, this is going to say a lot about me and my husband because we love like, <laughs> grit. And I'm waiting for Gangs of London, which is mm-hmm. <laughs> epic. Um, books mm-hmm. that I'm really enjoying right now. Um, I loved Honey and Spice. Oh, um, I am listening to the audiobook now of You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty. Um oh. I, what is this? Oh, this book I just got and I just started. It just happens to be here. Um, Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before? Which um, oh. is really digging into our ups and downs and what's depression and what's actually life. Um, so yeah. I just yeah, started right. that. Yeah. It's really, really Kennedy, some people go completely blank when we ask this question. You, I'm like <laughs> furiously scribbling down all of your answers right now. I'm this sorry. is amazing content. Thank I, you. No, I do feel like I'm going blank. I really do because I know there's no. so many movies and shows that I love and books yeah. that I'm not thinking about. Um, those are a few. Those are a few. That's great. That Fantastic. Is, those are good. <laughs> yeah, you've given me um, my TBR and two watch list is getting longer after talking to you but thank you it was such a pleasure you are such a a joy and we love this book and thank you for taking the time to talk with us thank you guys for having me so much much. this has been pop fiction women with corinne and kate if you enjoyed this show please tell the complicated women in your life and the men who love them yes tell them to listen and then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.